0: Isaiah 28 verses 1 through 29, the topic we're going to find there, Israel's leaders are drunkards who act hastily, trusting the word, uh, the world rather than the Lord. The title of the message, Hasting Away Again in Drunken Leaderville. (laughs) Father, we love you so much and thank you. We adore you. We want to just be before you right now, Lord, quiet in our hearts. I want to meditate on the fact that, Lord, if we're in you, then it is well with our soul. You've done so much, Lord. You've saved us and you're sanctifying us. You've promised to bring us to glory. There are things we want to discover, good works that you have before prepared, that we would uh, find them, Lord, and execute them in the power of your spirit. I pray today that you would encourage us and inspire us, Lord, from the life and ministry of Isaiah and the things that he uh, went through, Lord, in preaching Your Word, and that we would be greatly encouraged, Lord, moment by moment as we see this verse, these verses. We thank You in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, "Amen." Uh, Don't be hasty is the motto of what fantasy character? Who said? Treebeard, of course. Who knows who tree? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm going to quit sending out the transcript. <laughs> it's pretty sad that the people who read it don't know. But anyway, in the world of the Lord of the Rings, Ents were a race of beings who are best described as shepherds of the trees, or they called themselves tree herds, who managed the forests of Middle Earth. Ents acted slowly and deliberately. When they met for Entmoot, it took all day for them to greet each other. The hobbits were anxious to enlist their help in the conflict with the white wizard Saruman. Treebeard famously said to them, don't be hasty. verse 16 in our text, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Now, your Bible may have a different word there, a different sentence, but the root word is to hurry. God says to his people, don't be hasty. He's a master builder. It says here he lays the cornerstone, the foundation. In God's building projects, our haste wastes opportunities and responsibilities and privileges to partner with him. Worse than that, in our haste, we look to the world for our help instead of waiting on the Lord. So often the Lord has called us to wait upon him because he wants to teach us something and he wants us to learn something and we want out of the situation, whatever it might be, and we are hasty in the decisions we make. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, don't let haste interfere with the Lord building you. And number two, don't let haste interfere with you building with the Lord. Let's take a look at the Lord building uh, you in verses 1 through 13. Israel had a history of looking to Egypt for help. Abraham was hasty when there was a famine in Bethel. God told him to go to Bethel and he went. And he found that there was a famine in the land. And against the Lord's leading, in fact, without any leading, he skipped town going to Egypt. It was a tremendous spiritual setback. In the Exodus... At the border of the promised land, the people feared going in, so they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. The Jews were in grave danger from the Assyrian Empire. Rather than repent and wait for God's deliverance, they hastily made a mutual aid pact with Egypt. A lot of what this chapter is about is that treaty, that pact, and the stupidity of it concerning uh, the children of Israel because they had the Lord to defend them. Commentators are nearly unanimous saying that Egypt represents the world. In the Bible, the term world can refer to the earth and physical universe, but it most often refers to a humanistic, materialistic system put in motion by Satan that is at odds with God. There's tons of country songs and, and folk songs about, you know, working for the man, right, and, and you can never get ahead. Every time you think you're going to get ahead, they, they do something else. Uh, and, and that's the part of the world system that Satan has set up, is that you're, you're kind of trapped uh, before you're a Christian, and, and you only have so much uh, opportunity, and he, he keeps you down. That's the world. And it involves the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and, and the lust of the eyes. And, and it it's really appeals to our old nature. Christians should be in the world, but not of the world. I think most people understand that. Jesus said, Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. Christians need to be in the world like salt and like light. When a believer backslides, he or she is described as being worldly. And so it's the, there's the world and then there's the spirit. Isaiah exposes the worldliness of the Jews to begin. He says in verse one, woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim. The nation of Israel was bitterly divided. The northern kingdom was called Israel or sometimes Ephraim, the name of one of the tribes. And so instead of naming all 10 tribes in the north, they would just use Ephraim as a kind of a place setting. Uh, The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. It was just called Judah. And so you had Israel or Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south. And then it goes on to say whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine. Ken Burns, you may have seen, produced a documentary titled Prohibition a a nation of drunkards. It was startling to me because of what it revealed about the United States. One researcher said, we have oftentimes been a nation of drunkards. Uh, And if you go back to the time just before prohibition, uh, just about everybody was drunk all the time. Ephraim had become a nation of drunkards. Isaiah mentions wine in verse one, drunkards in verse three, then wine and intoxicating drink multiple times in verse seven. Ephraim didn't need a temperance movement, they needed a remembrance movement to see how far they had fallen away from the Lord. Like the Lord told the church at Ephesus, remember from where you have fallen. And so they needed to repent and and get out from under this terrible vice. Today the Apostle Paul says we can either be drunk with wine or we can be filled with the Spirit. Drunk with wine is the most obvious contrast with being filled with the Spirit, because we see people, in a sense, under the influence of alcohol. Uh, you know, and, and then we say, well, the, the Holy Spirit wants to influence you in the same way, but not to the same behaviors. He wants to be in your life, influencing you for good and for God. Instead of saying, taking the next drink, you pray the next prayer, you know, those kinds of things. And so the Lord said, look at, look at how alcohol controls a person. Let the Holy Spirit control you in a godly way. The idea here is that you want to be influenced by God and not by any of the powerful enticements of the world that used to hold you captive. Ask yourself, am I filled with the Spirit? Am I yielding to the indwelling Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's a person. He comes and lives inside the believer at the time you were saved and in Christ. And so what kind of a, we might say relationship are you having in terms of yielding to the Spirit and seeking the Lord? And so, you know, it's not enough to say, well, I'm not a drunkard. Whether you drink or not, you know, not the, not the situation. It's like, well, I'm not a drunkard, so I'm okay. But are you led by the Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you, are you listening to God? Verse two, behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. God would utilize mighty and strong Assyria, as his hand to discipline Ephraim. They were likened to a massive hailstorm. The mention of the flood may be prophetic. In the future time of Jacob's trouble, that we call the Great Tribulation, we read that Satan will spew out water out of his mouth like a flood after the Jews. One of the many names of the Antichrist is the Assyrian. And so this could be, it probably is, I would say it is a, A foreshadowing of the future time when the Jews would be uh, chased and hunted down in the wilderness by the devil and the Antichrist. Isaiah never missed an opportunity to share future hope with those struggling in the present. He keeps dropping these futuristic uh, prophecies about what's going to happen with Israel uh, to encourage and strengthen his people. I mentioned earlier that it is well with my soul thing. There's a story behind that hymn. Uh, The suffering that that individual endured is amazing and and tremendous. And so you should look it up. Um, I forget the hymn writer, but you can just look up, it is well with my soul and and get that backstory. Um, And and so his hope was in the Lord. Uh, And Isaiah wants our hope to be in the Lord. And so he keeps us looking forward to heaven. Uh, Verse three, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley. Like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. The fig was the first fruit before summer. The Assyrians would be observers, meaning strangers, who would devour Ephraim like a ripe fig. Verse 5, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. For a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. God always preserves a remnant, a small part, in Israel. These verses promise Israel's restoration. One day the Jews will sit in justice and judgment with strength to turn back their enemies. Because Jesus will be on earth wearing the crown, it will be what we call the millennial kingdom. Verse 7, but they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink. They're out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. The priest and the prophet were the spiritual guides for the nation. They were out of the way, meaning Satan had neutralized them. He got them out of the way because they were drunkards who could not be trusted or listened to or give great counsel. How'd you like it if you had a therapist and you went in there and he was sloshed? I do my best work when I'm drunk. No, that's not true. And so that's the idea, is that the spiritual leaders were were drunkards. Verse eight, for all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. These guys were so drunk that they vomited on themselves. And filth here means they soiled themselves, losing control of their bowels. These guys were drunkards. And, and I mean, they were pretty drunk. And it was, it was disgusting, really. Now I said this wasn't about alcohol, but that doesn't mean alcohol can't be a problem, it can. Crown Royal put forward the slogan, drink responsibly. The apostle Paul, whom we quoted earlier, might say drink spiritually. That is, if you drink, don't get drunk. Don't stumble others. Be cautious overall. Verse 9 Whom will he teach knowledge? Whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breast? Ephraim was talking, and they're saying, Does God think he's dealing with babies and toddlers, teaching them like this with monosyllables? I think Isaiah went to them and talked in simple monosyllables as if they were babies or toddlers, because that's what they're saying. They're saying, why is God treating us like this? Does he think we're immature babies and toddlers? And Isaiah, a lot of these prophets, you know, they did strange things. Earlier, we saw that Isaiah was naked for three years, I think. It's three or three and a half. Uh, All the Old Testament prophets did crazy stuff as a kind of a spiritual theater. And so I think Isaiah went to them in this kind of talk. And and here's the proof. Verse 10, precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. This is not a compliment. It isn't a suggestion of how to study God's word. It is a meaningless repetition of monosyllabic words. It's as if Isaiah went around babbling saying line line little little line babble blah, blah, blah. what for with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to his people it'd be like me coming up here this morning and starting to talk to you in baby talk and then stammering like porky pig. Line, 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 little, little, little. That's coming, by the way. I know it. You know it. Thanks for indulging me. But until that day, I'm here. But anyway. And then I break into a language, a foreign language that you don't know. I mean, so that's what Isaiah is describing. He said, I went to them and I stammered and I spoke baby talk and I broke into a language they didn't know. It was all a prediction of their coming captivity. They would become subject to Assyria and be spoken to in a language they did not understand. Do you think the Assyrian empire was gonna send people to the Jews and say, now we're gonna teach you Assyrian so that you can feel good about being in captive no, they say, you want to learn Assyrian, you better do it on your own. I mean, we're going to talk to you in our language. And you're not going to understand it, and it's going to be problems. And when you're, you'll see in a minute, when you're spoken to in a foreign language by God that you don't understand, it's not good. To whom he said, verse 12, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. If they had sought the Lord, they would have had rest and refreshment. But like Abraham and the Exodus, they preferred Egypt over the Lord because that rest required a, what looked like a dangerous waiting. When we get to it, we'll see that the Assyrians do come against uh, Judah at some, at one point when Hezekiah is the king and they're right there mocking God, ridiculing, they've already destroyed the Northern kingdom of Ephraim and for all intents and purposes, it's over for Judah But Hezekiah prays and the Lord answers. And in one night, as the Assyrians are asleep, he kills pretty much the entire army, 185,000 soldiers. But it was right at at what we would call the last minute, God would call the perfect minute, right? There, There are no last minute things with God. His timing is always perfect. There is something I want to pause and discuss. I think we have time. You might recognize that the Apostle Paul quoted from this passage when he was correcting the church in Corinth about their misuse and abuse of the gift of tongues in their meetings. Apparently, they were all speaking in tongues simultaneously, and no one knew what was being said. They thought of it as a sign that they were spiritual and that God was present among them. They assumed that unbelievers would be awed at the moving of the Holy Spirit and come to know the Lord. Paul quoted Isaiah to show them that quite the opposite was true. When unintelligible words are being spoken to you, it means God is displeased with you. He is disciplining you. And so Paul wrote to uh, the Corinthians. He said, Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Sign of what? That you're nuts. If the whole church comes together in one place, Paul said, and everybody speaks with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed, meaning new believers or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? So Paul says, if you misuse the gift, he doesn't say it's not a real gift or that it doesn't exist. He says if you misuse the gift, people are going to think you're crazy because you can't understand what's being said. And so what good is that? I'm going to try and give you a one minute overview of speaking in tongues in public. On the day of Pentecost, the believers received the Holy Spirit, praising God with unlearned, known foreign languages. That was not the gift of tongues. The Apostle Paul said, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. Speaking to God in an unknown mystery language that no one understands is a gift some believers will receive, but not all. If it is exercised publicly, it is useless unless accompanied by an interpretation rendering the utterance edifying to the entire church. Interpretation is also a gift. The speaker in tongues may have the interpretation or someone else may. When tongues is exercised with interpretation, It is just as edifying as any other speaking gift. All the gifts are under your control. The Holy Spirit does not come upon you and take over your movements. Gifts are to be exercised in the order Paul laid down in Scripture. Amen? And so all of that could obviously be uh, expounded upon, but bottom line, um, tongues is a gift for today. Not everyone has it. If it's going to be exercised, uh it it is under the control of the person that chapter says the prophets are subject to the or the gifts of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. so the idea that you would go crazy or do all these weird things when the holy spirit comes upon you um you know my dear pentecostal friends we love you but it's just not a biblical idea and so um you know it doesn't take anything away from the power of the holy spirit because he wants to communicate truth in a powerful way and so uh, you know, a lot of conservative guys would say, well, you see, tongues is no good. No, tongues without interpretation is no good because nobody knows what's being said. you want to speak in tongues in your private prayer life, go for it. But in public, God wants to share intelligible words. Uh, and so anyway, if anyone had a right to be hasty, it was Jesus. Think about it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit planned from eternity to send Jesus the Son as the God-man who would be savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. God the Son waited 4,000 years of human history before being conceived in Mary's womb. He waited nine months in the womb. He waited 30 more years in relative obscurity before being baptized to begin his ministry. He would minister for another three and a half years. He would wait a week after he made his entry into Jerusalem, hailed as king. Six hours on the cross, three days in the tomb, another 40 days until his ascension. It's been over 2,000 years that his return has been imminent. He will resurrect and rapture us and then wait seven years for the great tribulation to end before his second coming. That's followed by 1,000 years of ruling a still unruly earth. Finally, eternity will be ushered in. Jesus knows waiting. He has outwaited you and he will not be rushed by you. He's doing a work in your life and it takes exactly the amount of time that it takes or longer if you resist it. And so the waiting, for some of us, I know there have been times in my life, my waiting could have been over, but I was resisting what God wanted me to do or where he wanted me to be or say or something that he was trying to teach me. And so the lesson went on uh, because I was unable to graduate until I understood. What is being built on the foundation of Jesus laid down by the apostles and prophets is us, individual believers and the church corporately we are the Lord's building project. You know that. Number two, don't let haste interfere with you building with the Lord. If you didn't know better, you might think that the apostle Peter was a builder, not a fisherman. In his first letter, he tells believers, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then he quotes from our passage in Isaiah three times. And so he. comes forward as a builder. Bottom line, as I said, we are God's building project and we are enlisted to help him build both us and his church. And so we're the project and also we are co-builders. Verse 14, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, you rulers of these people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Treaties get cool names, right? Most recently we've had the Abraham Accords in the Middle East. Ephraim's treaty with Egypt was not called the covenant of death or the Sheol agreement. That's on the negative side, right? It wasn't called that by them, but it was called that by God. He says, you made a covenant with Egypt? That's a covenant of death. That's a covenant with Sheol for the afterlife. It's not going to go well for you. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. The New Testament applies these words to Jesus Christ, suggesting that the church is a household of faith. The apostle Paul says that he, the other apostles and prophets of the first century laid the foundation. We are to come along and build upon the foundation They left their teachings gathered together in the word of God and no other foundation. Foundation is perfect. The cornerstone is perfect. Uh, We build upon that the way we ought to. Gino taught on this two weeks ago at midweek. It was a really, really insightful study. You should just listen to it. It's about a half hour long. Can't uh, Can't spend too much time talking about every hasty thing. Instead, just think we need a constant vigilance against methods and practices that resemble those of the world. In terms of the church, the end doesn't justify the means. So we can't do something that's worldly in order to encourage people to be spiritual. And so we need and and we're we're prone to do it. Everybody is, because we have our own, uh, our own flesh to deal with and we see what would be best for people and we want to bring them into it and sometimes we just don't want to wait on the Lord. We want to hurry them along. Uh, I can't say everyone, but a lot of the help programs that come through, a lot of the Christian books that are written are, are these kinds of things. It's like, hey, I'm tired of waiting. Give me 40 days of something to do, right? Or give me 10 days. Think about it. There's always a period of time. God may say, you know what, Gene, I want you to wait 41 days and a half. No, I'm, I got, you got 40 days to do this because I just read about that or 10 days or 500 days, whatever it would be. Uh, the Lord's not going to be rushed. Also, I will make justice the measuring line, verse 17, and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you'll be trampled down by it. No matter how faithless the rulers of Ephraim, God remained faithful. His plan for redeeming mankind and restoring creation can't fail. Upon him is built the household of God and the Lord promised his people that they would be a part of it. Verse 19, as often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass over and day by day and by night, it will be a terror just to understand the report. Whether Assyria, Babylon, or the future Assyrian, the Antichrist, the Lord will deal with his elect nation in discipline in order that he might bless them. The point of discipline is always restoration. We call it punishment sometimes, but discipline is to restore and get people back in relationship. Verse 20, for the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. You're in a luxury hotel, your blanket's the size of a towel, and the bed is the size of a coffee table. Are you going to be comfortable and able to rest? Ephraim and Judah would not find rest by aligning themselves with the world. It's like the old adage, you made your bed, now lie in it. This, you think you're going to be safe and comfortable with Egypt, but this is, you know, this is what it's going to be like. It, it's like sleeping with, a, with no blanket on a bed that's uncomfortable. And that's the nicest thing Isaiah could say about it. Verse 21, for the Lord will rise up at Mount Parazim. He will be angry as in the Valley of Gibeon that he may do his work, his awesome work and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. These are two places in their history where God had given Moses and Joshua tremendous victories. We want so badly to see God work, to see God act that we try to manufacture it. Church building projects are a good example. If you're manipulated or shamed or coerced into giving or helping with building on the weekends or whatever it might be, how can you get up and say it was from the Lord? You can you know just say, hey, we, we built this building. We raised a bunch of money, you know, I I put the hammer down on you, you know. We had this company come in from LA that showed us how to do it and stuff, and we got it done. So let's applaud ourselves. That's fine. But we don't want that, do you? We want the Lord to do it. And this is, this is a great verse because the Lord talks about wanting to do something awesome and unusual. Think of anything God did in the Old Testament. Wasn't it awesome and unusual? The walls of Jericho falling down. Here, I have a strategy for you, Jer- or, uh, Joshua. You're going to march around this seven times once a day, every seven days, and then the last day, you're gonna do it seven times and the walls are gonna fall out. No, really? Yeah, that's awesome and unusual. <laughs> and, and so, but in our life, you know, we, we kind of want God to do something awesome and unusual, but again, we don't wanna wait for it or discover it. We get out ahead of God and say, boy, it'd be really awesome and unusual if we had a building or whatever the project is. And then you think, okay, so let's do it. And, and you know, nobody raises their hand and say, okay, well, let's pray about it. Let's just wait and see what the Lord wants to do. And the waiting, it's no fun, right? But it, it builds you. We don't want to, Jesus doesn't want credit for what we do in the energy of the flesh. Jesus doesn't want that credit. He wants to do something unusual and awesome. Verse 22. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord of hosts a declaration, uh, excuse me, a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Some restraints, if you struggle against them, get tighter. Once the Lord announced he is disciplined upon the Jews, they ought to submit to it. The, the, Jeremiah's prophecy, the whole time he's saying, hey, Babylon is coming now. There's no turning back. There's no repenting of that. Go with it and everything will be great. And Israel said, nah, we're, we don't want to do that. But you know, every now and then, uh, God says, yeah, this is going to happen. This is your discipline. Submit to it. Isaiah here takes another giant leap forward to the future, time of Jacob's trouble, when he says a destruction determined upon the whole earth, Uh, that can only be the great tribulation. And so verse 23, give ear and hear my voice, listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning the soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin? Plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place. For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick, and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever. Break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. And so it's kind of a home ec class here you know, and and farming, but these all picture one thing. God's discipline upon Ephraim, then Judah, then the nation in the future, 7 year tribulation, will be measured and merciful the way that a farmer deals with his uh, produce and crop. Uh, The Lord's a good farmer, and a good farmer doesn't only plow. He knows when to stop plowing and when to level the ground and when to plant and what to plant. And what tools to use at different times to work them all together to produce crops. Some of you guys and gals, have you ever tried to do something with the wrong tool? All the time, because some of these tools are expensive, but you're like, you're always with some slotted head screwdriver, you know. that Bring me out of my toolbox, the slotted head screwdriver that can do it. I can hammer with it, I can scrape with it. Occasionally I can screw with it, you know, but, but I can, and, uh, and then the guy comes in, he has the specialty tool, and what you had been working on for three and a half hours, he's done in 10 minutes and charges you for three and a half hours, you know, so, but, you know, it's, most of it's because of your stupidity or that you broke it, you know, and stuff, and so the Lord, you know, Isaiah's saying God knows what he's doing. He uses the right tools uh, at the right time. You may be in a time of plowing or of leveling or of planting or harvesting. Let Jesus work. You feel like you're cumin being hammered by a sledgehammer, but a good farmer would never do that. He treats you the way that you ought to be treated. Verse 29, this also comes from the Lord, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. First, a quick disclaimer. We are not telling you all professional help is wrong. Having said that, let's insert question marks in verse 29. Who is wonderful in counsel? Who is excellent in guidance? Jesus. Why would we seek counsel and guidance from any other source? I could see, you know, sometimes you have to settle for second best. You know, maybe you want to see the best surgeon on earth for whatever you're going through, right? He's booked for 10 years. And so you see a surgeon who's not as renowned or celebrated he's you know he can do the job and all but uh and so it's like Jesus says well I'm a wonderful counselor and an excellent guide you must be busy Lord so I'll go to this place over here with a bunch of non-believers I'm sure they can help me I'm sure they'll tell me exactly what you would tell me the Lord said hey it's good that I ascend into heaven so that you could receive the promise of God the Holy Spirit living in you As I've said many times the Holy Spirit today, the Holy Spirit is in our individual human bodies and he is in our corporate church body when we gather. One commentator put it this way, where do you run for help when you are in trouble? What is your first instinct? Do you run to others or to God? Is it usually the counsel of another rather than the counsel found in waiting upon God in prayer? Why is this the way it is? Why do we run to man before we run to God? Good question. Uh, And we need to really sit back don't even bring god your pro- or you know bring someone else your problem until you've answered this question why am i going to go to whoever when i haven't really spent time with the lord probably in counseling we should we people call it counseling we like to call it discipleship we probably should spend the first session saying how long have you been waiting for the lord to answer this or or how long is your waiting bit and then based on that say well come back and see me in about 4 months because usually this kind of situation takes six months for the Lord, you know, from other people I've talked to. Well, I need help right now. No, you don't. You need the Lord right now, and he may have you wait in a situation that you think you need out of. And so that's the idea. Treebeard said, you must understand young hobbit, It takes a long time to say anything in old antish, and we never say anything unless it is worth taking a long time to say. It can seem like it is taking too long for Jesus to say anything or that what he has said is taking too long. That's never true because he is God and he loves you. Father, thank you for revealing yourself as our wonderful counselor, as our guide. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to come to you and what that really means, Lord, to wait upon you and that you would do those things that are awesome and unusual in our lives. I know in my life sometimes, Lord, it's because what you've asked to do is unusual that I balk at doing it and that I look for other counselor or other wisdom. Lord, it's, it's wonderful to, to read about Joshua marching around Jericho, but it's another to, to be a Joshua who is called to something that's strange in order to grow spiritually. And so just set our hearts to to searching your will for our lives in Jesus' name, amen.